22 ноября 1955 года испытывала сводородная бомба. On a cold, clear morning in November 1955, a plane took off from an airstrip in the Central Asian steppe of the Soviet Union, carrying a new and untested weapon, codenamed RDS-37. The official film of this event shows the plane climbing high over a desolate landscape and releasing its cargo, a large silver and black bomb tethered to a parachute. The bomb drifts downwards, allowing the plane time to get away. For a moment, everything is quiet. And then... A blinding yellow-white sphere expands, turning orange and then red. It looks like a cosmic event, the creation of a new sun. Huge circles of cloud spread out around it. Below it, the stem of a mushroom starts to form. Standing on a low observation platform, about 70 kilometers away from the test site, a 34-year-old nuclear physicist surveyed his work. It was Andrei Sakharov. He had masterminded the project, the world's first air-dropped hydrogen bomb, a weapon 700 times more powerful than the one which raised Hiroshima. For several minutes, he and his colleagues stood in silence, watching the mushroom clouds spread to the edges of the horizon. They hadn't yet heard the explosion, but they had felt its heat on their faces, like the door of a furnace opening and closing. Eventually, the shock wave reached the platform, blasting their ears and shaking their bodies. It felt as if the air itself was tearing. There was the sound of broken glass. When the wave had passed, one of Sakharov's colleagues threw his arms around him. It worked, it worked, everything worked. Twenty years later, in 1975, Andrei Sakharov was awarded a Nobel Prize. It was not for physics, though. It was for peace. In the decades after the hydrogen bomb test, Sakharov had realized something which Cold War pragmatists in the West failed to grasp. He saw that human rights are not just an ideal, but an essential condition for nuclear security and the prevention of war. And the Nobel Committee recognized his thinking for what it was, an intellectual breakthrough. Sakharov wasn't allowed to leave the Soviet Union to accept the award, so his wife, Yelena Bonner, traveled to Oslo to receive it on his behalf and to deliver his lecture. Peace, progress, human rights. 
These three goals are inextricably linked. It's impossible to achieve one of them if the others are ignored, she said to the assembled crowd. Sakharov had enormous authority in the Soviet Union as the man who had designed the hydrogen bomb. In years to come, he used his powers to defend dissidents inside the Soviet Union and to exert influence on American presidents. And to him, his work on human rights was as essential for peace as his work on the nuclear deterrent. Because a country whose citizens have rights and agency, therefore also has an essential check against state violence. Whereas a nuclear-armed country in which these rights have been stripped poses a threat not only to its own people, but to the world. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky, from The Economist. This is Next Year in Moscow. Episode 7. The Runway. On the evening on 23rd, we all discussed whether we think the war will start or not. If I remember right, I was not sure that they will go for war. And you said that it's very likely. Maria Aismond is a human rights lawyer from Moscow. I've known her for many years, and on the eve of the war, we met in a bar in the city centre to talk. A few hours later, the bombs started to fall on Ukraine. Like the rest of us, Maria saw the headlines on her phone in the morning. But the news then began to percolate through other more personal channels. You know, as everyone else, I'm a member of uh, several uh, groups in social networks, including uh, a group of parents of children with special needs. Um, as uh, one of my children is autistic, so I'm a member of several groups of the mothers of uh, autistic children. Some of the members of these groups were in Ukraine. They sent messages describing the anxiety that was spreading through their families and their struggle to get their children into cellars and basements as the rockets fell. And some of them were saying, like, girls from Russia, why don't you remain silent? Why don't you not speak up, etc.? And that was the moment when I was absolutely clear that I'm going on the street with my own banner and not waiting near the police station saying, like, I'm sorry, I'm a lawyer, so I have other job to do this day. Instead of staying back to offer legal help to protesters, as she would normally do, she started protesting herself. And like so many of her clients, she eventually got detained. Finally, I spent several hours in the police station, but this is not a big deal. This is nothing comparing to what people who are under, um, under shellings feel or what they risk. Before long, she would hear many first-hand accounts of living under Russian shelling from people who had been in Mariupol, Kherson, and Luhansk. Cut off from the rest of Ukraine by Russian troops, hundreds of thousands of these Ukrainians had no choice but to flee into Russia. On neighborhood group chats, Muscovites like Maria started offering help. We were one of dozens, if not hundreds, of families that did that. Only in our small chat of Moscow, we had, I think, um, around six or 7,000 people in this group. 
Over the coming months, she and her family hosted dozens of these refugees. From nearly 80 people that passed through our house, every third, I think, lost somebody. Many of these refugees were aiming to seek asylum in Europe. In another world, it might have made sense for Maria to follow them and to set up a new life in Berlin, Warsaw or London. But that's not the path she's chosen. Because unlike journalists or IT professionals, her work as a human rights lawyer can only take place in Russia. So unlike most of the people we've spoken to in this series, she's remained in Moscow since the war began. The thing is that we all live in our bubbles. In my bubble, there's no one who support the war. Among the people that we encounter, that we go to drink with, that we spend time with, there are no such people. And a lot of people among those who remained, they do not support the war. As hundreds of thousands of anti-war Russians have fled the country, it has become still more important for those who remain to hold on to each other. First, there was depression. But a year on, there is a new feeling of resolve among these people, bonded together by a common threat. They try to do what they can by helping each other and others. There's not much things actually we can do. Moscow is an eerie place these days. On the surface, little has changed in the 13 months since the war started. It may have lost some of the gloss and become quieter. There are fewer men on the streets. But the city authorities have been working hard to preserve the facade of normalcy. It's rare to see the letter Z. We do not observe the war here, being in Moscow. We observe it, I don't know, in YouTube and... Uh, because we don't watch TV on so on um, in the internet. There's no war here in Moscow, so there's nothing to compare it with. If you recognize the war as a tragedy for Ukraine and a catastrophe for Russia, this makes living in Moscow a powerfully dissonant experience. The city is telling you there is nothing to see here, but you know that there is. Almost all of the people I've spoken to who remain there seem to be motivated by the same thing, a desire to confront this moment of national trauma at home and to live through it. Everyone has its own personal strategy of things he or she does and the way he or she lives uh, and acts those days. So um, I really think that it's all about personal strategies. Part of Maria's own strategy is to avoid the conflicts that break out every day in common threads and on telegram channels. In this charged atmosphere, even an innocuous post can trigger someone's rage. If you posted a photo of you sitting with someone in a cafe, you are a criminal because how do you dare go to a cafe when things are so horrible elsewhere? And I don't have enough strength. I want my psychological strength to remain for me for some other things I do. Maria and her colleagues have plenty to do these days. Since the start of the war, 
some 20,000 people have been detained for protesting and hundreds of anti-war cases have been brought to trial. Her clients include high-profile opposition figures like Ilya Yashin, who was recently jailed for spreading information about Russian atrocities in Bucha. And they also include people whose names will never make the headlines. Ordinary Russians caught in the gears of an inhumane system. While there is no shortage of cases, there is a shortage of people like Maria. I always try to treat people individually. It doesn't matter what's the color of their skin, what's the color of their passport. For me, what matters is what they think, what they feel, how they act, how they behave. This refusal to put people into predefined boxes gives her an unusual perspective on Putin's Russia. Because having interacted with countless operatives of the state, from prison guards to court clerks, she sees individuals where others might see a faceless mass. I would say that I meet many people inside the system that are not cruel, that are not fascist, that are really not have normal human reaction. The thing is that no one can imagine himself not obeying what his superior says. And when sometimes I ask the question, well, you understand that there is no crime here. Why don't you just release a person? The first reaction is always like, oh, what? Like, <laughs> like what? Me? <laughs> to, to do that? Like, are you insane? And I say, well, what happens? And this is a quite difficult question because no one knows what happens because no one tried. The system has trained them to be fearful, obedient and helpless. And they sing a familiar refrain. I mean, my superior will just get this case, criminal case from me, give it to somebody else who will be maybe even worse. It will harm me and won't change anything. And maybe they're right. When evil is this grey and banal, goodness can seem like a splash of colour. In 2021, large protests broke out across Russia after the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, was jailed. Thousands were detained in central Moscow and then bused to police stations around the city for processing. Maria went out to help them. Among the cramped cells and the uniformed officials, one person stood out, a policeman. He was one of those whom we noticed because there was a lot of human in him. It was the small acts of kindness that made him different. He would go and bring some water to the detained, because others would, ne would even not uh, accompany to the toilet. Most of the people in the cells were unable to contact their families. They'd had their phones confiscated. This guy would give them his phone to call home. And he had red hair, so we called him Rizik. Red-haired one. Yeah, red-haired one. After a few hours, Rizik came up to Maria. He said, you know, I never met so many wonderful people in one police bus. 
And he was really interested in what we say in court. He said, may I also come into the courtroom? May I listen to what you are saying? May I listen to what they are saying? He asked a lot of questions. And for me, it's a sign that somebody is like alive. It's a sign for me that he must continue communicating with them because nothing is lost here. He asked Maria for her contact details. She gave them to him, but didn't expect to hear anything back. For the next year, she didn't. But then... Beginning of the March 2022, he suddenly writes me an email. He said, hello, this is this red hair guy. I wanted to tell you that I just wrote uh, a report of uvolnění. How did you say it? A resignation. Yeah. You saw the resignation. Uh... I just wrote a resignation and I thought that it's very important for me to tell you that. And I was quite surprised and I said, well, well done, good, okay, fine, and thanks for telling me that. The next day, Maria received another message from the man. She said, I cannot sleep, I cannot eat. The war was something that he could not bear. Quitting wasn't enough for him. He joined the protests. This is the only case that I know. Somebody could not resign but immediately took part and went on the streets. He was beaten. I remember the first time Maria told me about this message she'd received from Rizik. Speaking to me then, she positively glowed with pride. It was as though she had won a case. When he in turn was arrested, Maria visited him in a Moscow police station and offered him legal help. They're still in touch. And Rizik is a character Andrei Sakharov himself would have recognized. In one of the most moving passages in his memoirs, he is visiting a gulag, where he meets a prison guard whose small act of mercy stands out amid the common cruelty. For all Russia's traumas, he wrote, sparks of simple humanity and compassion for others have not been utterly extinguished. Will anything come of them, he wondered. For the nation as a whole, I have no idea But is that so important? So long as there are people, the sparks will glow. Decades on from this, Vladimir Putin has turned the judicial system in Russia into something that would also have been familiar to Sakharov. A tool of repression. Of all the detainees who go through to trial in the country, fewer than 0.3% are acquitted. That's a small rounding error away from a 100% hit rate for state prosecutors. And by taking Russia out of the European Court of Human Rights, as Putin did last year, he has deprived his citizens of even that avenue. Given all of this, I wanted to understand something. What is it that you feel you can do as a lawyer in a country where security services, where the state says they're above the law? What's the point? Um, that question was asked so many times to so many lawyers that we already uh, know the answer. Like when we were young pioneers, you always knew the answer of Pioneer будет готов, and you know that you must say всегда готов. So the answer... Pioneer be ready, always ready. Yeah, Pioneer be ready, always ready. She told me there are two big practical reasons she still does her job. 
Firstly, in spite of the repression, the state hasn't yet prevented lawyers from seeing their clients. For many of the people she represents, she is the vital link. With his relatives, friends, and generally outside world, bring news, talk things, and look after that he's not ill-treated or she, etc. So it's a palliative. Yes, uh, it's a palliative thing. The second thing is perhaps even more striking. After everything Putin has done to crush free speech, the spaces in which the state orthodoxy can be publicly challenged are shrinking almost to a single point. Russian courts, especially in recent years, have suddenly became became sort of tribune, place where you still can openly say things that are uh, for a long time prohibited to say elsewhere. After the break, we'll go inside a Russian courtroom. Hi, I'm Rachna Sharnbog, Business Affairs Editor at The Economist. I want to tell you about some of the reporting our team has done on what the war in Ukraine means for energy markets and the global economy. Most recently, we've looked at the way in which Russia is dodging oil sanctions on an industrial scale. Once dominant Western firms have pulled back from trading, shipping and insuring Russian oil. In their place, mysterious newcomers are selling the country's crude. Many have never dealt in the stuff before and are using ageing tankers and ropier insurance. Ukraine's allies have good reasons for wanting to wash their hands of Russian oil. But the global energy system has also become more dispersed, divided and dangerous. It's just one of the economic effects of the war we've covered in The Economist this past year. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you. You make this possible. Otherwise, for access to all our journalism and to join exclusive events with Arkady and others on our team, visit economist.com slash Moscow offer. That's economist.com slash Moscow offer. The link is in the notes for this podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a Moscow courtroom, all the trappings of a typical trial are on show. The prosecution and defense present their cases. Witnesses are called, questioned, and cross-examined. But everyone present already knows what the verdict will be. The accused stands alone in a glass cage, wearing a black jumper that says in Russian, if you live in a superpower, stay super strong. Dmitry Ivanov is 23 years old. He is on trial for posts he made on his Telegram channel in the weeks after the war began. He was a student at the time at the prestigious Moscow State University, studying mathematics and computer science. 
Dmitry had shared content from Volodymyr Zelensky and Alexei Navalny, as well as posts about civilians killed in Bucha and the destruction of Mariupol. The prosecutor is incredulous as she questions Dmitry. How would you know that it was Russian forces that destroyed homes and hospitals in Mariupol? Were you there? I read reports from independent news outlets and international organizations, Dmitry says. And I used common sense. Russian troops were on the offensive and Ukrainian troops were defending. Are you aware of laws introduced since the special military operation? The prosecutor asks. They make statements like yours a crime. Yes, I know better than anyone, Dmitry replies. So why say these things? She asks. Because freedom is the ability to say that two times two is four, Dmitry says. You're Russian, the prosecutor says to Dmitry. And you said you trust Volodymyr Zelensky. Do you trust our president? No, I don't trust President Putin, he replies. And that's why I'm here. No further questions, Your Honor, the prosecutor responds. How would you describe him in your words? Short guy, <laughs> very active, smiling. He's very kind. Dmitry's defense lawyer that day was Maria. He used to have long hair, but the, the day he was detained already for criminal charges, and I came to see him, I said, you cut off this hair before you, you go to the cell. Maria has known Dmitry since 2019. They first met after he was detained during a protest at the university. And the next day, his mother came with some food, water, etc. And we met first time with her. And um, I said, look, uh, you have a really, really great, young, very intelligent and very good boy. But, you know, if he doesn't stop it, he'll end up really in jail. And she said, I understand. I always tell him to stop, not to be that active. She said, you know, I would really like that he graduates before he is put in jail. When Dmitry was arrested last year, he was just a few months from graduation. At the end of the trial, he was allowed to make a final statement. For me, it's simple, he said. The investigation trying to accuse me of spreading fakes has constructed the largest fake. Literally everything in this indictment, from the first to the last word, contradicts reality. As Dmitry gave his statement, his mother looked on. And afterwards, she came to me and said, look, I always dreamed to be present and to see how he will defend his diploma, his thesis. And I was so sad that I understood when he was arrested that I won't be present on it. 
but it seems to me that today it was sort of his thesis. Do you really think he was good? I think, yeah, everyone, everyone thinks he was great. Like, everyone likes the way he did his testimony, the words that he spoke. So you, you may really be proud of him, sure. While waiting for the verdict, Dmitry was allowed to speak to the press through the glass of his cage. He had prepared a statement in English. Uh, I feel no regrets, I'm not afraid, and uh, I have something to say, uh, especially for you. You must understand that Russia is not Putin. I know that tens of millions of uh, people here in Russia are against this criminal war. A lot of us have friends and relatives in Ukraine, and we feel their pain. Uh, this war is great tragedy for all the Ukrainian people, but it is also tragedy for Russians. The judge, Darya Pugacheva, soon returned. And sentenced Ivanov to eight and a half years in a penal colony. Why would this young man, a talented student with a prosperous life ahead of him, want to put himself through such an ordeal? This is a form of moral protest. It's not about the future. I think it's a matter of he could not remain silent. And I've met a number of people like that with the motivation that we don't want to be ashamed of ourselves. So we speak just because we cannot remain silent while all this is happening. And this is what he did with the full realization of the possible consequences. The consequences are years in a Russian penal colony. The thought of that alone is enough to strike fear into most people. But Maria told me Dmitri is not afraid. I never saw him depressed. On the contrary, he got very well with all his cellmates and he's very active in this relationship with the people that are guarding them and the people that are sitting there. It's hard not to be impressed by the grit and stoicism of this young man. But he is not unique. He's not the youngest. There's another, another guy who was detained for the same charges. I think he's 18 or 19. By going to jail, these people are, paradoxically, claiming their right to their country. And this is a, a big sacrifice. But sacrifice that they feel they need to pass through. They need to do for the sake of the country, of the reputation of the country. So they do think about the country? Of course, yes. They do think a lot about the country. Well, otherwise, they would, they, would, they would go to another one <laughs> and think about other So it other is things. theirs. They, they now yes. really own it. Yes, it's their country and they don't understand why they should leave it. And to Maria, the fact that Dmitry and many others like him are being jailed is revealing of a fear spreading within Putin's regime. What does it say to tell you about the state that puts its 23-year-old students the best and the brightest in jail? Not only the best and brightest students, the best and the brightest pensioners, the best yes. and the brightest okay, <laughs> middle-aged people. 
because it's afraid of the best and the brightest. It's scared. He scares them. You do not put into jail somebody that hasn't really committed a real crime. Otherwise... Scared or not, sentences like Ivanov's have the desired effect on the population. Every person put in jail for the free speech, for his opinion, for his anti-war postings, will make silent hundreds of thousands. That's why they lead press in the courtroom also. Looking in from the outside, it's easy to begrudge these people their silence. But Maria doesn't see it that way. People have their families, their work, their future. It's really a rare case when somebody is ready to sacrifice a big part of his life, probably some part of his health, and probably his whole life depends on the state of his health and his age, to, uh, to be able to say the truth. And so I am absolutely sure that no one can blame those who remain silent. It's unfair. Maria's reluctance to judge others is a testimony to her own strength and sense of agency. She doesn't pretend to know the future, and she is not debilitated by history. In fact, there is one scene from the Soviet past which she and many others have been returning to. Eight people went in the Red Square in the times of Soviet Union to protest against the invasion of Czechoslovakia. This was in August 1968, and we've heard about it before, you may remember that Andrei Babitsky's grandfather was one of the eight. KGB agents swiftly moved in and crushed their protest. Seven of them ended up in jail. And it looked from 1968, from the neighboring street, as absolutely senseless, self-destructive action that, of course, didn't bring any change in whatsoever. But years passed, and this is one of the actions that is written in, in the manuals of history, of human rights, of dissident movement. In his memoirs, Andrei Sakharov reflected on the Red Square protest. With this bold action, these people restored our country's honor, he wrote. And the invasion of Czechoslovakia was a pivot for Sakharov too, the moment when he turned away from the Soviet system and threw himself into human rights work. Eventually, that landed him under house arrest in a closed city within the Soviet Union, stripped of his awards and unable to talk to the press. He was finally released by Mikhail Gorbachev, a man whose thinking had also been shaped by the events in Czechoslovakia in 1968. To Maria, the lesson of this story is that in the heat of the moment, we're in no position to judge the significance of our own actions. No one knows what would be the consequences and how the history will judge today's acts. Later on, we'll see if that brought difference or not. And maybe it will bring difference. Maybe it will bring huge difference. Maybe, who knows? And maybe not. In a place like Putin's Russia, the best way to find meaning is to stay disciplined about your perspective. Focus on some things that you can do and can make change, even though it will be a small change. Little help to somebody who needed it, little support for somebody who needed it. There is a story I've heard Maria tell before, which captures something about the work she and others like her 
are doing within Russia at the moment. I asked her to tell it again. I think it's a true story about the guy that was cleaning every day the, how do you call this? Um, runway. A runway of the airport that didn't work for a long time. In an abandoned airport, a lone man starts to clear the runway. Over many years, he keeps it free of debris. It seems like a lesson in futility. But one day... An airplane got problems and had to immediately land somewhere, and it was the only working, well-cleaned runway where the airplane landed, and no one got killed, and there was no plane crash. Russia today might seem like a plane out of control, destined to crash. But to Maria, this is no reason to down tools. The only questions you must ask, I think, to yourself is, like, this thing you are doing today, is it right, is it good, is it what you think it's needed to done? And just forget about any big scale of whatever. I last saw Maria in Berlin a fortnight ago. She was on a short break with her daughter, meeting one of the Ukrainian refugees who had stayed with them in 2022. A few days before we met, we learned that one of our colleagues, a 31-year-old American journalist called Evan Gershkovich, had been taken hostage by the FSB and charged with espionage. This carries a sentence of up to 20 years. In today's Russia, nobody is safe. Least of all, people who report the truth or defend it. We're in Berlin. You are flying back to Moscow tomorrow. Yeah. Um, you're in, in a risk zone. I don't think about it. It's not something I think about. How ready are you for? Well, we'll see. I mean, how ready a person is, you can really see only when it comes to... <laughs> To be detained, and then you see you're ready or not. You may say any, you know, pathetic words now, but unless it comes to the real thing, you won't know whether you are really ready or not. As we were getting ready to publish this episode, I received a message from Maria in Moscow. One of her colleagues, a human rights lawyer, had been detained. His house had been searched. She told me she was in a cafe and was being closely watched by plain-clothed man at the next table. They were not ordering anything. Next time, in our final episode, a landing. Welcome to Moscow Airport Sheremetyevo. We thank you for choosing by the line and hope to see you on board. Have a nice evening. Next Year in Moscow is produced by Sam Colbert, Pete Norton and Ksenia Barakovska with help from Lika Kramer and Liba Liba Studios. Additional production and development is by Sandra Schmueli. Our sound design is by Wei Donglen with original music by Darren Ang. Our executive producer is John Shields. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky. This is The Economist. 
That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 